Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elson, kicking things off for us tonight. Nicholson Dam from Imogen Moon's record, When They Start Rebelling. This is a fascinating project. Uh, it is a uh, reworking of her grandfather's album, Songs for the New Industrial State. Uh, Doug Randall released that one in 1971. Uh, features members of the Dap Kings, uh, Produced by Ian Hendrickson Smith, uh, who's worked with The Roots, and uh, Kevin Howes, uh, a.k.a. Cipriano, who has been a guest on our show before to talk about the Native North America comp and the Willie Thrasher reissues, uh, was involved in this as well. Um, hopefully, maybe we'll get Imogen and Kevin on to talk about this project in the near future, because, uh, boy, it's certainly something that caught my attention. Uh, in the meantime, though, we've got a busy show we're going to be talking to Nick Friesen, formerly of Jaded Elated, uh, about his comp, the Transistor Sound and Lighting Company tribute. Uh, just We played some tracks last week, and uh, we got him on to talk about it. But uh, before that, sending this one out to my pal Jonathan Duick, who's a big fan of this record this year. I know he had a bit of a tough fall. So this is In My Body dub from the Reset in Dub, Panda Bear, Sonic Boom, and Adrian Sherwood. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. It's in my body It's in my body It's in my body It's in my
Right Rule, released December 1st, getting some buzz. The tribute to Transistor Sound and Lighting Company. Nicholas Friesen, the man behind this comp, joins me on the show. Welcome back to Thank God It's Free Range, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me, buddy. So I know this is a labor of love for you. When when did this go from, like, you know, niggling idea to, like, actual project? You know, it started, I mean, the Transistor Sound and Lightning Company record, it came out in 98. It's the only record by the band, uh, local band, Jay Cherko, uh, who we all know and love. Chords of Canada, you know, occasionally <laughs> comes out of uh, retirement <laughs> here and there. But this Transistor record, it's always been this benchmark for if I if I meet someone new and you start talking music, and you say, yeah, but have you heard Transistor Sound and Lighting Company? And something will click if they have. And you're just like, okay, yeah. Like you understand lo-fi, poppy, like really clever songwriting, like just what this record means. It, it just kind of, it's a, it's a catch-all to me. So, you know, you'd make friends along the way and you talk to people and it, and it, the first real conversation was me and uh, Andy Cole, who had a band called Eagle Lake Owls and now has a great band called Great Wealth. Uh, and he plays in the Olivia C project with me. And it was probably five, six years ago. Uh, we were like riding home from Folk Fest with my wife, me and Andy. It was the it was whenever that Wilco show got rained out. That was mm. the one we went. To. And uh, we're talking about the transistor record. And we were like, you know, the 20th anniversary is coming up and blah, blah, blah. So I guess it was 2018 and uh, or 2017. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we should do like a tribute album for it. And, you know, it's it's one of those ideas where it's just kind of talk and idea. And then um, as the the 20th anniversary comes and goes, we don't do anything. I think I even thought about doing something for the 15th anniversary back when I worked at the Uniter newspaper, you know, mm-hmm. when I was a managing editor there. I was like, maybe I'll do an article or an interview or something. Never did. Um and then, uh, yeah, so about a year ago, we were recording the last batch of Olivia C songs, and Andy goes, let's do a cover of Elegy for Peaches um, from Transistor Record. And I was like, okay, now this is going to kickstart the process of, of doing this uh, <laughs> doing this tribute album proper. And he was like, oh, did I just open a Pandora's box? Yeah, let's do it. And so... He brings Eagle Lake Owls out of retirement to uh, to pay tribute um, on the record. And so, yeah, this was last November we did those recordings. So over the course of the last year, it's been uh, I've, I've put together a number of compilations. I did an, uh, one like this uh, in 2017 for uh, Matt Goodband's Underdogs record, uh, 20th anniversary. Uh, and then I've just done like some other like, you know, compilations did one over over you know covid the homemade winnipeg compilation put it out through my label in service records and uh, this is also out through in service records but it was just kind of like a a call out of okay who's who's interested in transistor sound and lighting company and then they start you know picking at the songs and uh that's been the last year and one of the many projects michael <laughs> so the the underdogs project did that kind of prepare you for a project like this where like you know like like a comp in and of itself, very often is it's just like gathering the people and kind of chasing them down to get the songs. But something like this, where it's like an album recreation, you kind of have to apportion who's doing what. And I have to imagine that's like a, that's a different beast. Having done a comp without having those strictures, uh, I, I can only imagine kind of the the level of difficulty. So then, like, 
how do you kind of decide, like, did you have more than one band being like, I want to do song X, and then you have to kind of, like, figure out who gets what? Yeah, I mean, I got kind of lucky in the the people that, like, some people were just like, actually, I was thinking of doing a Transistor cover, or I have this one in my back pocket, I just haven't recorded it yet. And so there were certain bands like that, like A Band in the Car, doing House of Sleep, and Freaking Snap had Good Egg already, Um and I think that Blunders Public was working on Planet Sweetness, like, and then heard about it and was like, oh, wow. Um, so there was those. But it's, it is very difficult because you're recreating an album, so you have to hit every song. It's not like with Homemade Winnipeg, where I was just like, hey, it's COVID. We're all at home. Send me something you recorded at home. Could be totally lo-fi. Could be, you know, full-on production. You, maybe you got your band together over email and did it. Um, Whereas with this, it was like, it was hurting cats. And there was a number of people that uh, I had lined up for uh, to cover Anyways Mayonnaise, uh, which was the hit off of the Transistor record. Um, they had a couple of singles, but that was like the hit. Um, and I won't, I won't say who uh, was <laughs> able to contribute, but I did go through two names where I was like, ooh, big name doing the big song. And then they didn't work out and then the replacement didn't work out. And so then uh, we wound up with two bands doing anyways mayonnaise. And one of them is just a bonus track. So we have Marin uh, who are kind of on a break. Uh, I believe their, their bass player moved away, but, uh, but Joel, the drummer, uh, you might know him as beef donuts or one of the many other projects that he cookie delicious. Yeah. Um, so Joel and Jay go way back. And so it was just like, yeah, yeah, we're definitely doing a cover. Um, and then this other band, Portables, uh, their their cover arrived in my mailbox. Some some bands like Famous Sandhogs, you know, like Total Mystery Band. We don't know who they are. Same with Portables. Uh, but the Famous Sandhogs, I just reached out and was like, hey, I need to fill a hole on this. Uh, if you're not too busy, can you cover The Blanket Gives You Zen? And Michael, within an hour, I had the song back to me. Not just like a response saying, yeah, we'll do it, but the song itself. Yes, oh the recording God. came like, yeah, I was <laughs> bored tonight. I was looking for something to do and this is it. So just like full on production, like drums, guitars, uh, you know, layered vocals, the whole thing. Um, and then, yeah, like others like Ryan Stanley, Shadeen, like I was like, you know, he's, I, I produced his record um, when I'm awake in City Sleeps uh, and I just reached out. I was like, I don't know if you know Transistor, but I think that you would do a really good version of three chords. Um, and then he did and it was great like he replaced the moog synthesizer with harmonica stuff like that so like really putting their own spins on it and then imperial public library um which is a, a band that no longer exists um but they reached out and were like yeah 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 we wanted to do it and that it was just like for a year we were emailing and i was like okay yours is the last song and they were like oh man so we have these parts and i was like send it over to me i'll mix it i'll add in moog synthesizer and we'll we'll call it done and so yeah there were some songs that i wound up recording uh like i went to the midnight review presents house and after a hard drive crash they lost their mix of the song so i was like i'll come over on saturday and we'll record it and we had a blast and uh took a little video of that which you can find on youtube and uh yeah, it's a lot of work to put together a tribute album. <laughs> yeah, uh, it certainly sounds like it. And like you said, hurting hurting cats. Um, it sounds especially with the Imperial Public Library thing. Like 
you know, the the band maybe got it to like the five yard line and you're like, I need to get it in the end zone. Can we please like do this? How do I help you? <laughs> and so in some ways you're like the quarterback and in some ways you're the, you know, coach on the sidelines. I, I have to imagine it's a like a lot of different hats and, and like kind of maybe psychologically taxing for you. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And I mean, I'm to be honest, I'm slowly kind of like lessening i've been i've been making music for a long time you know we all have like i turned uh i, I hit a milestone birthday this year michael and um i'm getting old and I, like i would say about five years ago i like i was like i'm not gonna play live anymore i'm just gonna chill out and and, and write songs and record them and that's why i've been doing this olivia c project just music and hanging out with my friends writing and recording songs and then it, that's kind of morphed into a comic book project. Um, so I've got six issues of that out and I'm moving more towards the comic books. And even with in-service records, I've been putting out, like I kind of started it for my old band, Future Kids. Uh, so in-service records turns 10 next year. Um, it's been around since 2014. And I've put out like about 30 releases, some physical, a lot digital, but it's, you know, some singles, some EPs, some full albums. And it's just like, it's a lot. And there's so many people involved in making music and I love it. And there's still a few projects that I, I want to do, but it's definitely slowing down for me and just my own lifestyle, like making comics, which is a very like, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's also like just calmly sitting down at the drawing table uh, by myself and, you know, yes, the collaboration with others is good. And I've collaborated with some some people on comics projects this year, but it's also like with music, just even trying to get people all in the same room together. Like the Olivia C band has only been in the room together once for our second record. Every other time it's been, you know, over email or like people coming over, like the schedules don't align. And it's like, oh, we're all going to come over on on Remembrance Day. Oh, actually, I don't get the day off. Oh, actually, there was a blizzard and my driveway snowed in. So it's just me and Andy, you know, recording guitar parts or whatever. So it's it's a lot, man. And like, you know, I'm not I'm not actively in a band anymore. So I'm just kind of I'm just kind of chilling, Michael. I love music. I'm a huge music fan. But I just, you know, I I I put out records that have have done well in the charts. I've never been in a touring band, but I toured with comics this year. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like shifting gears and still like the Olivia C project is a musical project, but it's a comic project. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, did you have any compunction to do a show for this tribute album? Like, was there any like inclination towards that? Or is that just because like getting these people to just record is one thing, let alone gathering them to like play on stage at the same time might be like a bridge too far. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i put on some shows that have done well over the years. Like one tribute uh, album I put out a few years ago with the No Label Collective, like 12 years ago, that was the uh, tribute to Wheels, uh, the Degrassi album. And we had an amazing show, an amazing turnout. We sold out the Windsor, RIP to the Windsor. That burned down this year. That sucks. Um, great show, great turnout. We had a bunch of bands involved. Um, but as a lot of the bands actually on the on the tribute album, like some of them, are barely active you know like they're they don't even have social media it's just like some of them came out of retirement to do this some of them are just like yeah i'm not really playing shows right now uh some of them are playing shows it was one of those things where it was like and also like 
the transistor sound and lighting company band is not going to reunite unfortunately they're just like it's not that i've really asked but other people have asked over the years and it's it's not happening but i I did get copies of the record to jay and i still haven't gotten them to dino but we've been messaging on instagram um yeah so i i gave copy to jay the other day and you know he gave me the the like the two hand you know thank you you know covering my hand type of like the the oh sir thank you so much type of thing and it was it was very sweet um so it's just i was like oh we made this for you man we just we love the music we made this for you guys um but no doing a show i think that only one or two bands asked like yeah we're gonna have a party or a show for this and also again i'm just i'm i'm too old i'm, I'm tired of lugging my bass amp around up and down the flights of stairs <laughs> um it's just i've I, I put on a few events like in my day job life and with the uh the one great history podcast that i produced we did a live show this year but i just to be honest i don't quite have it i, I barely had it in me to get this record out before the end of the year to hit the 25th anniversary well, you, you managed to do that. Uh, there's physical copies, uh, tape and CD. Is that right? Yes, just the same way that the that the original came out, cassette tape and compact disc. Uh, so you can you can get copies of it into the music, or you can go to uh, inservicerecords.bigcartel.com, or just or just find me on uh, on Instagram or whatever Inservice Records or Nickel Astronauts, uh, and I'll get you a physical copy. And the uh, uh, the digital's on Bandcamp. Uh, com for that. Before I let you go, Nick, I want to get you to pick a track off of the comp that we can play for listeners, give them a little taste of uh, what they have in store when they uh, get a copy. I think that we uh, we got to do the hit. We got to do Anyways Mayonnaise uh, as performed by my friends Marin. Uh, so let's let's hear that one. All right. Well, Nick, congrats on uh, getting this across the finish line and hurting all those cats. And uh, and uh, thanks again for making some time today. Thanks, Michael.
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. Right before the break, Marin with Anyways Mayonnaise off of the Tribute to Transistor Sound and Lighting Company, which you can pick up at Into the Music if you're looking for the cassette or CD or online at bandcamp.com. My thanks to Nick Friesen for taking some time to talk about it. And coming up after this next musical selection, Kathleen Martins is on to talk about a new podcast series, which we will actually be airing as part of Thank God It's Rearrange over the next five weeks. Uh, we'll get into that in just a few minutes. A little later, we got Scott Nolan on to talk about his new record out today. But before that, a record that's not out till January 19th, 2024, Selmer's Body Wash record. Great stuff. I've heard in advance of it. It's really solid. And the latest single is my favorite cut from the record. So we're going to play that. It's called Waking Up and Making Out. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.
All right. Well, recently released, the Our Relatives podcast explores the overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples amongst Winnipeg's unhoused population. Senior digital producer at APTN News and host of the podcast, Kathleen Martins, joins me to discuss it, after which we will be airing the first episode and uh, over the next uh, five weeks airing the entire series. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Hi, thanks for having me, Michael. It's great my, to be here. My pleasure. So I'm, I'm curious about kind of the origin of this series. At what point did you decide or did the, the team at APTN decide to create a podcast about this rather than, you know, obviously, I mean, there's a variety of different methods in which you can kind of tell this story, but why podcasting? Absolutely. that That's that's the heart of this whole thing. That's why we decided to do a podcast because, sure, I could write the story, but you can't smell it hear it, feel it, you know, walk through the the garbage on the street. You can't uh, hear the panting of the dog that's with uh, the emotional support dog that's with somebody sleeping in a tent. We wanted to be there. We wanted to hear these people's stories and we wanted to introduce them to listeners. And we knew a camera would violate their privacy and, and they, you know, they wouldn't go for it. So we decided to record their stories and do a podcast and it has been very effective although it's we've had some funny comments too like um what time will i be on tv so that's uh and the other part of your question about the genesis of it was during the pandemic i like like many winnipeggers noticed more and more people in bus shelters and i wanted to know why and also who they were and uh, this podcast helped me find answers to both of those questions, who they are and who they were, pardon me, and why they were there. And um, it answered a lot of other questions for me, too, because I have always found homelessness, uh, you know, it seems simple on the face. But when you start to think about it or discuss it with friends or family members or even start going down the rabbit hole online, it's complicated really complicated and um even just these few months doing this and the five weeks of the podcast uh, has given me a much greater understanding of homelessness and where some of the blockages are in the system uh but from hearing people from people who are in it and work in it so speaking of hearing people in it you mentioned you know having the camera would uh you know violate the privacy but did you meet any resistance just with you know audio recording like were people unwilling or reluctant to maybe share with you off camera one person said she didn't want to be recorded and that was it but she said i have a lot i want to tell you i'm going to give you my phone number and i want you to call me and i did do that and in fact she wanted me to meet her friend who lived in a bus shelter outside kildonan place mall on Regent, which you know, I thought that was a an odd place to be living, but it but it, it works for her. She's she's lived there quite a while, and so I went and picked up this woman uh, who didn't want to be recorded, and we went and took a coffee, and we met her friend and her friend in the shelter, whose daughter is always with her, and I almost get the feeling the woman stays there so she can have a bit of privacy, um, away from her daughter. But I didn't ask that. Um, so we did that off, not off camera, but off mic, I guess. However, they did give me permission to use it in a web story that I want to do in the new year to um, where I can put other things that didn't make it into the podcast. 
Mm -hmm. I'll put them, put that in the web story and, and I have their permission to use their story there, uh, minus their names. But that was the only place that when, as soon as we said, we don't have a camera, people, you could almost see their shoulders just drop. They were much more relaxed and would say, hey, come on, I want to show you this or uh, look at my feet or, you know, it was just, it was something I couldn't have done. Um, I just feel it wouldn't have had the same impact. I wouldn't people want to hear their stories. And if I am always paraphrasing and taking the odd quote here or there as I do in a digital story, I don't think it would have the same impact. Right. As far as shaping the story and figuring out kind of the, the scope of the podcast, how did you, like, did you collect audio and stories and then start sifting through to figure out kind of what episode is what? Or like, did you have a sense of kind of the arc of the podcast series? Well, I'm fortunate in, because I did television documentaries here at APTN for seven years with the APTN Investigate Show. So that gave me a really good ear and eye for a story told through, you know, visually or even via audio. So here I would write to my clips, write to what I saw. I did try. It was a different style of writing, of course, than the daily news writing I do. I had to... Um, you know, use a different part of my brain, if you will, to to try to do long form again and um, be more of a narrator. And I know I I could do much better, but I still had my daily news responsibilities to juggle. So uh, hopefully, I get this got it across what I wanted to. But it was some of them were just episodes in and of themselves. I could tell. I knew uh, going to a certain event that this was going to be like Hope Alley, for example, is going to be the, the fifth and final one. And I knew being there, that's going to be the last episode. And I knew karaoke, homeless karaoke was going to be the, the first one because it was so unique. And what a great way to introduce people to, you know, the homeless community and how people are working with the homeless community in Winnipeg very differently, especially Indigenous people who are working in it with other Indigenous people who are homeless, doing a very different approach. You know, we would say decolonizing it, if you will. Um, so I just knew some of them were in and of themselves stories, and then I just needed to add additional voices. Uh, and some I saved for the website, uh, which will be um, online, and then that'll be another way to help promote the uh, the podcast. So it's I've just done it a long time, and so I have have that that was like the least of my worries. You know, I knew what was going to go where uh, or very early on. So what was the most of your worries then? Was, you know, making sure that I was true to what people were living, to their experiences, and not trying to interpret it through my lens. I, I wanted them to speak. I still wanted to tell a story for the listener, but... Um, the other thing was I know some of these issues well from working on them separately, but here they all intersected in homelessness. It was so interesting to me that to see it in front of me where I, let's say I've done stories on people who survived residential school and they would tell me they lived on the street. Here I met people who were residential school survivors who were living on the street. It, it's like, there's like a difference there. I, I met the, the second one I did about being unsafe. I knew from Indigenous, with First Nations women in particular, they don't, many of them don't feel safe in their communities, right? There isn't a, 
often a, an on-reserve police presence. They're often predators or people who are serving um, house arrest in their communities. Uh, they want, would leave and come to the city, uh, where, again, they would not be safe because they're preyed upon in uh, on the street and even in homeless shelters. So to me, I could connect it all together where they would leave their community to come to the city to be safer, where they weren't safe at all in the city, especially if they had to live in a homeless shelter. Um, at the same time that's going on, we've got, we had that, uh, that we have this case that's coming to trial of a man who's charged with killing uh, four Indigenous women, two of, at least two of which were homeless, and he met them through homeless shelters. That was another element, you know, of lack of safety running through the story. Uh, so many of these things intersected. So um, housing as well on First Nations. I had a, a woman who worked her whole life, a career on a First Nation in home care, had never had a house to herself, was always living with her auntie because people who have families get first dibs on houses on reserve, and there is only a small pool of houses. There's long waiting lists. And she said, I retired from my job. I didn't want to keep living under my auntie's roof. She moved to Winnipeg where she's on welfare and living in the McLaren Hotel. She's in her second year there. There's no, she can't afford to buy a new small fridge. The one in her room doesn't work. There's no stove. She uses an electric fry pan. She has a very bad arthritis. She can't cook for herself very well. She can't chop things. She tries to get, um, you know, go to food banks and supplement, try to get things that are already chopped up. But long story short, she had to leave her community for some privacy which she has living in a single room at the McLaren, but she also lives week to week, barely surviving, doesn't go out at night, is fearful, isn't in a great neighborhood. So it's almost like one problem leads to another problem. And those intersections are represented in the homeless community effect, you know, and that to me was, was very interesting. That interconnection, right? Like even just you're mentioning about her inability to cut the things like the notions of disability access and, and, you know, there are a lot of food insecurity, things like that that are raised within within 100%. the context of it. And all it really does seek to do is reinforce that everything's interconnected and in the title, our relatives that we are interconnected. Uh, Kathleen, congratulations on, on the series. Thanks for taking some time to talk about it and, and thank you for letting us broadcast it. Oh, it, absolutely. My pleasure. We want to get it out as much as we can. Really appreciate your support. Thank you, Michael. They're called beggars, drunks, even bums. But these people you see on the streets have names, families, and stories. Over five episodes, I'm going to introduce you to some of them. I'm Kathleen Martins, and this is Our Relatives. Let's start with a little karaoke. There he is. <laughs> All right. Good evening, one night. Check, check. 
190 is the street address for Nadinawimak, Winnipeg's newest and only indigenous-led homeless shelter. It sits at the bottom of the Disraeli Freeway, next to the city's downtown core. Tonight, we're in a large common room that doubles as the cafeteria. It's karaoke night, a monthly feature offered when the temperatures drive more people indoors. This is the only room where men and women interact. Their dorms are separate and located on different floors. Rick Moorlag is one of the employees. Singing about patience seems appropriate. Rick gives off a laid-back vibe. He's the night manager who handles intake at this shelter that doesn't turn anyone away, whether they're drunk or high or in between. Karaoke at a homeless shelter, I believe, <clears throat> it makes it brings people back to when they're having a good time, having a good time with people, socializing, um, kind of tribal mentality a little bit, uh, community, everyone having fun together. Wi-Fi is glitching and causing some songs to cut in and out, but nobody seems to mind. Some people sleep right through the music on their chairs, while others lounge on black mats on the floor. Two couples are up slow dancing. The songs are as varied as the people. Sort of like homelessness in a nutshell. Everybody needs a roof over their heads, but not for the same reasons. The elderly man belting out this Bee Gees classic is in a wheelchair. At last count, about 1,250 people were homeless in Winnipeg. That's according to the official street census of 2022. An overwhelming majority of those surveyed identified as being Indigenous. At least 50 were over the age of 65, and one was 80 years old. 18 was the most common age at which they found themselves on the street, usually after aging out of foster care. So we have 100 beds down here. And, um, and 50 upstairs for the women. This is a common area. Frank Parks is the First Nations Executive Director of Nadinawimak. He's also a musician. He says his band might play the shelter one night. We are Indigenous-led, and we're low barrier. 
What that means is we don't turn people away when they're uh, intoxicated or uh, um, under the uh, effect of drugs. Other shelters will turn away people that are highly intoxicated, yeah. Nadinawemak has beds for about 150 people and capacity for another 50. It serves 600 meals a day and houses thousands of people. Unlike the other three major shelters, this one remains open during the day. The Moccasin Telegraph is a powerful communication tool. So we're well known in the community as uh, a space for Indigenous people. So we do have a percentage that are non-Indigenous or, or that kind of thing. But again, we don't, we don't turn anybody away. Catherine, Catherine, see you slippery wine, you're up. Catherine Myron is a former radio disc jockey. She's in between houses and has been on the street for about a year. Her soft voice and good looks cause heads to turn, especially among the men. Being a young homeless woman is the epitome of vulnerability. Believe me, I do worry about my safety, especially being female. And, you know, uh, sometimes you'll dress down or even dress like a guy just to stay away from that. Catherine comes from Long Plain First Nation, an Ojibwe and Dakota community about an hour west of Winnipeg. It's the home of two women who lived on the street before they disappeared in 2022. Their names were Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron. Winnipeg police allege Harris and Myron were murdered by a serial killer who frequented the shelters. I, I, yeah, I think I, I read something in the newspaper, and I think um, that's exactly uh, the issue. An APTN investigation found that Indigenous women accounted for 65% of all female homicides in Winnipeg between 2018 and 2022. In 2022 alone, Indigenous women represented nearly 20% of all homicides in the city, while making up just 6% of the population. Indigenous women also accounted for every unsolved female homicide in the last five years. A national inquiry that ended in 2019 found they were 12 times more likely to be murdered and go missing than non-Indigenous women in Canada. The inquiry concluded colonialism was the root cause of this violence and labeled the ongoing hate a genocide.
how come you're here tonight at the shelter? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I used to be a radio personality, so I, I worked on radio for over 10 years. Then I went into food security. I started a couple orchards to help there. And, um, you know, um, we, everyone in their life encounters um, barriers, roadblocks that we put up ourselves sometimes. It could be addiction. It could be mourning. It could be separation. You know, and um, I, I suffered all three. And uh, so I found myself in a situation where I had nowhere to turn and uh, luckily you know the shelters and people that are at the shelters they've helped me so um, I'm just trying to find myself again I guess. And how did it feel when you were singing? It actually um, it, it helped me today. Today's a very special day. Uh, yeah it was uh, it's my son's birthday so yeah I wanted to um I, I didn't get to see him, but uh, hopefully somewhere, you know, um, he feels my love for him. When Canada was being settled, politicians created special rules for Indigenous peoples. They were herded into segregated communities. Their children were forced to attend Indian residential schools. Their families were subjected to racist child welfare practices. Frank says the effects can be seen in the homeless community. They are our relatives. Um, and, you know, when we say, when we talk about relatives, you know, you've heard that thing, the six degrees of separation, right? And that all leads to Kevin Bacon. And well, the reality is you probably only have to go two degrees and you know somebody who's homeless or has been homeless or uh, is on the verge of being homeless. So, uh, so we use the term relative to describe them because they are that close to us or our family. Rick is one example. He's a First Nations man adopted by a white family during what's known as the 60s scoop. That's when Indigenous children were taken from their homes to be raised by non-Indigenous people between the late 1950s and early 1980s. I did find my adopted parents, my biological parents, and to be honest, it was my biological mother was only 12 when she had me. So when I found her, she was only 12 years older than I was. So she was in the system back then. Like survivors of residential schools, those apprehended during the 60s scoop lost their language, culture, and indigenous identities. It's a pain, a trauma, that can lead people to addiction, and addiction can lead to homelessness. Were you ever homeless? I was. I was homeless by choice. Like I said, I had an RCMP family. There were rules that the Rick didn't necessarily want to follow. So I chose to, when I was 17, chose to go live in a tent in the Yukon. Um, it was more of a choice. Like I said, I could go home. But um, I learned that everybody needs love. Everybody needs to feel kindness.
By the way, Nadinawemak means our relative's place in Ojibwe. On the next episode of Our Relatives, the streets can be a dangerous place. So can homeless shelters. Teresa Bauer is a Cree woman who was sexually assaulted at Nadinawemak. At 190, I was sleeping in front of a Kiwi, and just around the corner is the entrance. Yes. And I fell asleep in front of the TV, and and I woke up, there was a sheet on me, and my pants were down, and, and I just turned around and started punching the guy out, and then I got up and I started screaming. I'm Kathleen Martins. Goodbye for now. Written and reported by Kathleen Martins. Recorded and edited by Jesse Andrushko. Produced by Mark Blackburn. Theme music by Backyard Rink. Cover art by Shania Murdoch and Alicia Dawn. All right, well, his latest album is called Before Tonight. It's out today. Scott Nolan joins me on the show. Welcome, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the the genesis of this record. Like, I mean, some records are, you know, a collection of songs you wrote over a certain period of time, and some are, you know, thematically linked and, and kind of speak to each other. Which is this? Or is it a combination? Um, you know, the business and industry's changed so much since I've made a record, which is funny to say. Between my last record and, and this one, the, uh, the music industry itself couldn't have changed more. So what this record is for me, actually, is um, I was the grateful recipient of a film and music grant. And the, this record for me is, I don't want to say my last chance, but maybe one of my last chances to assemble. Uh, when I made my Silver Hill record in Alabama, I worked with a really great group called Willie Sugarcaps. And I love the experience. I love the group. I wanted to see if I could do something like that at home with my regular crew, uh, musicians I've played with since the beginning of my career. And so this record to me was a chance to make a band record where I could go in with a full group. We recorded all the vocals and primary group, five-piece group, completely live. So there was no editing and, and no um, comping of tracks. Uh, so that was the big thing for me, was to get to work with a group and, and, and make the whole record together that way. But otherwise, the songs themselves, uh, I think I... I, I Quiet, Bijou. I chose them from a, a, a bigger batch of songs uh, and, and just felt that they fit, you know? Was it the ones that worked best with the band? Was that the notion? Like these, because I want to have this as like a celebration or an opportunity to record with this group, these are the songs that work best in that context? I think so. Quite often it's what's on my mind. I'm a sucker for everything I'm working on at the moment. And that happens a lot with me. So um, there was some stuff that um, started as poems in my book of poetry that lingered around and, and became songs later. And then there was um, like a song called Cabbage Town, which has been around a little while and has been recorded by other people. So it, it moves up in, 
in um, priority sometimes by, geez, I should probably record the song myself if other people have already got to it. <laughs> sure enough. You uh, you mentioned it was stuff that was on your mind. As far as being on your mind, when it comes to songwriting, are you like a purposeful songwriter? Like do you sit down and think, I'm going to write a song about X or a song about Y? Or is it something where stuff is kind of like percolating and you're like, yeah, you know what? I think I need to like suss this out, these thoughts out on, on paper. I seldomly write on purpose, if you will. Yeah. I seldomly do that. I actually wrote with uh, Brandy Veniza, Veniza, she's Besna? I'm saying. Besna, thank you. I wrote with her not long ago, um, based around a story she had about where she grew up. And it was an exciting reminder to me that I could do that, you know, that I could get on Zoom with virtual stranger and listen to um, their story and, and find a song in it. So that was kind of energizing and inspiring to know that I could. But if I'm being honest, you know, I write when it kind of, I'm being nattered at almost all the time by something, you know, lyrically or otherwise in my head. So, but I can't say as I sit down and like say, oh, you know, today at one, I'm going to sit down and write. I don't really do that. Sure. The, the Stephen King school of like up and get a certain number of words in. Yeah. You know, I, um. I think I could, and I, I guess I know I have a little. My relationship with writing in a, in, in a lot of ways is like health maintenance in a way. I think I um, things ping-pong around in my head until there's a certain degree of urgency or, or inspiration to put them somewhere. But otherwise, they're always there, always working. Sure. Um, I've heard comedians talk about how they're always listening, their antennas are always up. I'm, I'm definitely that way. Yeah. It creates a system of processing, I think. Right. So when I go through the rest of my life, I can process in a similar manner, and it works. Sure enough. Now, the marriage of the music and the, the lyrics on this record, I, I was curious, because like you said, you wanted to get this band together. You wanted to have like this you know, fun dynamic with these, these group of local folks that you've you know, been a part of your musical life. Some of the songs themselves, though, when you listen to the lyrics, kind of wistful. Like It's like a weird kind of pairing of like this like celebratory full band sound to these songs that maybe are from a darker place. Is that an intentional yeah, thing? My mom said to me uh, right around the time I made this record, uh, I can't wait for you to write happy songs again. And I laughed and thought, oh, geez, dude, I don't know that I ever specialized in happy songs. But um, but I never necessarily uh, thought of my songs as being unhappy songs. And I joked that I went back and added La La La's to three songs. Mm. You know, there's some truth to that in a way, you know. They are often mournful songs, if I'm being perfectly honest. that's Those are the moods and places I tend to be inspired to write from. But I guess I was trying to pair it with music that was maybe more uh, hopeful or encouraging. Or, you know. I mean, it's part from a, a long lineage, though, because I was thinking about that when I was watching the, the video of Shane McGowan's funeral and obviously the performance of Fairytale New York. That's just, It's a unhappy song played in a joyful way right like that it's yeah well that that song to me um i've joked a whole bunch of times when i when i first started making any traction at all in music my more successful peer group would say to me oh you're late to the party there's no money left and i used to joke there was too much money in the first place i've never heard a song worth a million dollars i really don't think i've heard one worth a million dollars when i look at what people get paid for certain songs i think really you know, and, and then I would think, okay, you know, not that I'm saying this is my favorite song, but maybe Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Maybe it's worth a million bucks. Like, it's a pretty flawless song. Fairy Tale of New York's another one. It's a Mount Olympus-type song, 
and um, you're right about that. The lyrics are dark, but the, the sentiment is hopeful and encouraging. You know, if you've ever had a moment in your life where you were low to the ground, where like things weren't going well for you, if you had to panhandle or hitchhike or steal or, uh, you know, if you've ever been anywhere near these places, you'll be shocked to learn that it's where the most generosity and kindness exists. It's a funny thing. And for me, thankfully, I was still a pretty young man when it happened, but I'll never forget it. The most generosity and kindness I'd experienced, I experienced when I was at the street level of life. And, um, and I was shocked by that. There's a hopefulness and a gentle sweetness there. And it's probably alcohol and drug fuel and loneliness, you know. But so Fairy Tale of New York, really, I think that's why it's kind of such a masterpiece is it really captures that sentiment. Um, I was meeting my father recently for lunch over near Polo Park. And I passed some guys, you know, right across from Polo Park in the middle of the day with a glass pipe smoking methamphetamine, laughing hysterically. And at the time, I had a, my lifelong, one of my best pals was in palliative care at Riverview, and I was going every night to visit him. I spent every night of the last two weeks of his life with him. And I drove by these guys, and I thought, oh, I can't remember the last time I looked half as happy as they do. And I'm not suggesting they were maybe genuinely happy, but in that moment, they were. They didn't give a shit about what was going on in the world. and I mean, they weren't, they weren't caught up in it. And so there's a little bit of that thing bottled in that song fairy tale of new york and there might have been a little bit of that idea bottled in shane mcgowan's heart you know but it's what made him so good in the first place some people can kind of cop those things and other people actually live them and that's what is interesting about shane i've been reading about him since he passed of course he's a big uh, i'm a big fan of course um you know he's an interesting guy he um he was dark and wild and crazy but he had this incredible capacity for love. He was deeply spiritual and religious. He was a lot of, he's an interesting uh, juxtaposition of things I find and um, probably why he was so darn good at writing that had such an impact, you know? Yeah, it, it is interesting to think about, like, like I, I mean, obviously like that song feels like wallpaper in some ways, like, you know, you hear it every Christmas, but, yeah. with, but with his passing and, and you know, um, seeing Glenn Hansard perform it and, thinking about kind of the lyrics and that yeah like like that juxtaposition of of like sadness and joy what you're talking about you know when someone's at their lowest but that the generosity of spirit that exists when they don't have much to give but they still give of it it made me think of kind of like maybe that's part of what like working with other musicians is like at its most purest point is like all you have to give is is your energy and your creativity with each other and that like that spirit is something that you're tapping into that's the hope. I mean, I, I think if it can be approached from a place of generosity, and I mean, again, we live in, it's, it's tricky because um, one thing that occurred to me when I went to make this record was my local crew here that I've worked with, and Paul Balcane, Joanna Miller, and Joe Fonier, literally from the beginning of when I started writing my own songs, working under my own name, all of them were there from my first record on um, Glenn Buer, of course, a little bit later, but... Um, all these relationships, the layout and design of the new CD, the same artist that's done all my records, the mastering engineer, same same people. And it's really just kind of, uh, I've really just been taking notice of it. What a great feeling it is to have the same crew. And uh, when I grow, they grow. When I evolve and, and get better, they, you know, it's a more satisfying shared experience than it is 
on your own. But um, one thing that hit me when I came home to make this record is how many groups, all those people I mentioned, maybe with the exception of Glenn, um, how many groups they have to play in just to make a living. That's heartbreaking to me. One of the reasons, I don't get into the politics of, of streaming or how people play music. I could care less. Whatever the, the conditions are, I accept the terms and I put my head down at work. But I will say that I have somebody helping me with my career lately, and they asked about sharing the Spotify year-end stuff. And those are the reasons I won't participate in any of that stuff, because that's in part the reason my friends have to be in eight bands. And it's in part the reason why I, I'll probably go back to making records myself, where I have to, uh, not have to, but choose to play all the instruments. It's how I started and how I trained, if you will. I, I trained to go into a studio to make records playing the parts myself and um, I grew to love leading groups I grew to love assembling teams and, and trying to bring the best out in it somehow you know but um, I think those days in a lot of ways or at least for a while I'll, I'll go back to making probably a record or two where I just don't have that luxury but it's a exciting experience you know to, to be in it with a group and like I say what it takes in this day and age to assemble that group and be able to keep them focused very, very, very challenging. You've done some production for some other folks, and I'm curious about those experiences and whether that lent itself to making this record. Like, like, do you have a different approach or a different sense of how, how to construct things when you're orchestrating for someone else versus for yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, I call my little studio the song shop, and uh, interestingly, I'd never made a Scott Nolan record in there. Mm. I stopped touring several years back. I, I found um, the road had begun to really have a negative effect on me become quite anxious and uh, it really disrupted my whole world there for a while. And as good fortune would have it, I built the studio for myself as a workspace and uh, I started getting invites to make records. And I, I look back and I swear I didn't pursue a single one of those records. They all just came to me in some organic way and there was a, a window of about three years. I feel like where my uh, I produced about 18 or 20 records. And again, my old colleague, Jamie Sitar, that I make, uh, he's been mastering my records all along. And in more recent years, um, in many cases, he's been mixing them as well. And then in the song shop, he's my um, my house engineer. So he engineers all the sessions. And we had a terrific run. We um, It slowed down a little bit. And since kind of COVID has um, uh, not ended, certainly, but um, some of the restrictions have subsided. Again, you know, um, not to keep replaying the the modern music system um, issues but uh, there's a great group of artistic people that I respect and admire and love what they do that just can't afford to make a record with me mm -hmm. and it's not because I'm a high-priced music business bigwig it's because um, I, I have a pretty basic system that's not exploitive or overpriced at all it's actually um, I'd say very competitive our rates but we only choose things that uh, or I only choose things that I really love I wouldn't go into a record if I didn't feel like I could make it as if it was my own. And, and in a lot of ways, all those records I produced, in my heart, I feel like they're all a part of my greater creative legacy, not that they're my records as much as I, um, I put everything I had into them, the way I would have anything else I was doing, every time. And so I'm proud of them, and Jamie has my room dialed in. He knows what something will sound like before he sets a mic in front of it. And it's because... Every time something came my way, it came his way. And um, by allowing this build and, 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 and thing to grow, it, it, it was really one of the smartest things I ever did. And I think I only really probably did it because 
the anxiety of touring and that lifestyle, I was a, a broken spirit. And um, getting together with these little communities of people working, that's what had a good hand in kind of the rebuild to be able to go in. And so that was a really long uh, way around your question, but um, not only informed uh, certainly the way I approach my own record, but I think it's just kind of the, the greater mentality of it is what really is serving to me, you know. Interesting to hear you say, you know, you look at other people's records that you've produced as part of kind of your body of work, right? That, that like your your involvement in it in some way speaks to kind of what you do as an artist, whether it's the words you wrote or the song you sung versus, you know, the, the album that you put your hand on the tiller for. Yeah, I don't think I could, I, I could rent just a part of myself in that way in the, you know, every time we got to open the doors back there to make a record with somebody just... It's hard to describe what it felt like, but it was, um, I'd already done a, quite a bit. I traveled a lot. I get to get clapped at fairly regularly. You know, it's lovely. But um, getting up and going to work on your own terms like that with your friends and colleagues that you've developed shoulder to shoulder with and championed and um, encouraged, there's nothing quite like that. I really fell in love uh, very quickly with the idea of the team, build the team, work the team, and, and uh, I continue to apply it to my life. Everywhere I look, you know, these colleagues, I realize, God, you've been here since the beginning, you know? What a what a interesting thing. And, and in fact, you know, um, the pandemic, in a lot of ways, I weathered okay. My long-time common-law relationship ended very suddenly about a week before the pandemic lockdowns. No real warning or anything. It was very out of the blue, and... Um, so the combination, uh, that probably affected me more than the pandemic. And then I wrote out the pandemic, okay, uh, it was when it ended that things got harder for me. I remember waking up one day and thinking, geez, do I even have a job? And then uh, it was Ian Maddie, Ian and Trudy Maddie that run the Wits End House Concert Series. It was Ian that emailed me. It was a bit of a wellness check, if I'm being honest. You know, He, he reached out to ask um, how I was doing and was curious why I wasn't working. And I didn't have a great answer for him. And um, before long, he said to me, what if I booked you some shows and took you to them? Would you be interested? And I don't mean to make it sound like I was some sort of helpless guy, but I was stuck in a lot of different ways, spiritually uh, stuck. And Ian's reaching out to me really was a wonderful thing. He had said to me, you know, uh, I don't want this to go to your head, but I believe in your music. I think people should hear it. I believe in what you do. I think you're... I think you're good and people should hear you. And I was really, I got to tell you, I was really moved and uh, and agreed. He booked me some shows. And, and then a, a musical colleague, Joe Nolan from Alberta, was coming to town and playing at the Whitsend House concert. And Ian had the idea that I should join the bill, call it Nolan and Nolan. That was right in the middle of my friend passing. Uh, I, I was up sitting with my friend before and then immediately after the concert. It was a very heavy moment in my life. But Joe and I really connected, and the show was really good. And then Ian said, you know, why don't we do a short tour with this Nolan Nolan concept? And so, you know, it's it's really interesting. Ian's this very smart, thoughtful guy that's retired. And he loves music. He's passionate, but he's no sideliner. He's, he's too kind of, I don't know what the word is. He's too, um, he's a helper. Helpers don't sit on the sidelines, even when they retire. It's just not their nature. There's always some little thing. And while he is enjoying a show, he's going, hmm, I could make this better. You know, that light's burnt out. I should, you know, I mean, there's always little things. He's always, and um, so him and his wife became known for that. They throw these wonderful house concerts that are outperforming clubs. 
you know. And it's really, uh, I'm not knocking the clubs, but I'm just saying um, what they did was it wasn't your average house concert. They built a little network and they had a little email list and they cultivated an audience of people that trusted their, their tastes. They cultivated an audience that were excited about seeing things they hadn't seen before. That's, that's not what our culture does. Mm-hmm. Our culture want to go see the things they know over and over and over. We don't want to go see something we don't know. It's, it's interesting. So had a really great effect and, and ultimately became a part of that team that I spoke of. And the team now has grown significantly since Ian's participation. I mean, it's why we're talking, you know. I think Ian was the, the middle connection here. And so uh, I consider myself grateful. I've always fallen a bit short of the, the music business stuff. I've always struggled in it. Uh, when I was 18 or 19, um, it was showcases. And in many cases, you'd pay to apply. Like it's, it was a whole community of people making a living off of broke-ass musicians, desperate to be heard. So we're, we pay you to apply to do your thing, your showcase. We, we pay you to, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's what they call the pay-to-play model, which was created in Los Angeles and New York. So we got these body governing bodies, and we pay for our membership. We pay for our, all these things, right? And I don't know. Maybe they work. They seem to work for some people. And right at that time, I was kind of um, the pedal steel guitar player in Fred Eaglesmith's band. Became a big champion of my song. I was a young guy, really just starting. So to have any champion of my songs was a big deal, let alone somebody that was in a position where they could help me. And again, it was one of my early experiences of these helpers, you know, like, oh, geez. I was just out there rambling around, partying, trying to get people to hear me and care about what I do, you know. And so that's where it started. And it, uh, all those things have really kind of informed what I do. Because uh, I've said it before, anything good that's ever happened to me in this business has been the generosity of more successful artists. The arts and music, it's a, it's a funny place, you know. Again, uh, kind of like streaming, I just accept the terms of it. It's never meant to be easy, I don't think. But if you can persevere, these things will not only shape you, but they'll build your character so Ideally, when you're in a position to help somebody else, you won't have to think in this compartmentalized way of, I'm going to consciously help one community over another. Hopefully, you'll be empathetic and human enough to understand that this is it's about art. It's not about gender or race or, or any of these things, you know. So it's it's been interesting kind of um, coming up in a country that values the arts enough to have funding and supports for it is amazing. But it also creates an industry unto itself. So... In, in some ways, we've gone from having champions to gatekeepers. That's a, that's, a big, that's a big change. When I started, I had somebody like Kevin Walters yeah. at Manitoba Film and Music. I remember being 19 when Kevin Walters said to me, I think your songs are some of the best I've heard come out of this province since Neil Young. It took me a decade at least to realize that I'm not the only person he, he said things like that to. Not to suggest they were insincere. But that's how specially he made me feel at a time where I needed it. I really needed it to kind of get my roots growing. Mitch Bedalek, another one. You know, the critical part of, of the evolution of it all. So I've tried, especially when I started making those records, I tried to keep that stuff in, in, in my what I did. You know, I tried to impart it as best I could wherever I could with other people. Mm-hmm. Because we, we still have it. Those people are still out there. But... Um, Maybe not quite the way they were. So I was lucky. And that group I got to travel with, um, I got the opportunity to jump in the van and like trial by fire or do those showcases. And so I jumped in the van. It was a hell of an education. 
I never told stories or talked to audiences or did any of those things. And suddenly I'm in honky tonks throughout Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma and like, oh, geez, this is no joke. I better be, I better be entertaining at least. And so pretty great experience. No doubt. You know? Well, to echo what Ian said, people need to hear your songs. Before I let you go, Scott, I want to get you to pick a track off Before Tonight that we can play for your listeners. Okay. Um, you know, I kind of like Before Tonight. Before Tonight, the song was a poem from my book. The book's called Moon Was a Feather, and uh, and the poem in the book is called Before Tonight, and it, it's the shortest little poem. The poem is, um, we're all just warming our hands by the fire, how good it is just to love somebody. And I was walking through a Cinnaboyne Park one night, after dark and there was all these fires i guess it must have been the fall and there was all these fires as i walked the path and at every one was young people and uh, i would notice as i walked they largely seemed like newcomers maybe not newcomer newcomers but newer than myself and groups of youth and uh, and i remember thinking about louis riel and his whole dream of a multicultural society in manitoba and i remember thinking you know He'd be very pleased to see this. And and, um, and there's something kind of sweet and innocent about it. I, I don't remember often seeing young people sitting around fires and kind of warming their hands and talking and like drinking hot chocolate. It all seemed very kind of innocent and, and, and lovely. And so I wrote that poem as I walked, eventually became that song. All right, well, we'll give that one a listen. You're going to play some of these songs in, in for Winnipeg audiences right away? Yeah, we're going to play Times Change, which um, uh, before the pandemic, it had been about five years and now it's got to be, I don't know, seven or seven and a half. It's really, it's, it's kind of nuts. I played Blue Note Park for the first time in the summer. So that's special to me. Uh, I haven't played the club in a while, and it's, it's a, a big part of my history and, uh, here in Winnipeg. And so I'm particularly excited to, to get the group together for that. January 12th, we have Jess Rayer um, and uh, some other guests that I'm kind of uh, just confirming as it comes up they're going to fly in and make some appearances and so it's yeah i'm hoping for one of those great old like in the early days times nothing beats it man i mean it's just you jammed in there and hopefully it's like a blizzard i don't know hopefully we get snowed maybe maybe we'll have some snow by then right i think it'll be special um there's something special about uh clubs like times that it's um just different than a bigger theater you know so yeah. January so it'll be a great one. Speaking of champions, none none more champion than uh, John Scholes. Oh, sure, it's the best. Uh, Scott, thanks for taking some time to talk about the record, and congratulations on its release. I appreciate you talking to me, Michael. Not to mention the stars, just watch them fall. It goes over now. Not to mention the stars under the light of the moon. It shines in your eyes There goes my world Here comes the night 